Chapter Twenty Seven, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty Seven, Part Two. It was an education in the religious conditions amid which I was working to enjoy the intimate friendship of Francis Newman. No American could follow the vicissitudes of our struggle with more poignant anxiety. He subscribed for the Commonwealth, the Liberator, and the Anti-Slavery Standard. He talked with me about the intimate discussions and differences among our abolitionists as if he were one of the Frank Bird Club. He often spoke in the Emancipation Leagues, and wrote in friendly papers. When the Confederate envoy Mason's publication of my correspondence with him brought on me reproaches from my colleagues in America, he exhorted me to leave my case in the hands of my friends. My admission of mistake in pledging anybody but myself ended the matter. With reference to the attack of one American censor abolitionist, Newton wrote, quote, he was unpatriotic enough for many years to be willing to allow all the slave states to secede and sustain slavery, which I do not learn he now scolds himself for, while he regards you as unpatriotic in having been willing to take the chance of their seceding if they would promise to abolish slavery. You too were equally unpatriotic, taking you at the worst, while he would have resigned the blacks to slavery, but you would have rescued them. Newman had lost confidence in Lincoln, regarding him as unable to see the principles of justice in the case of blacks. He said that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart had been present to his imagination all through the war. After the assassination of Lincoln, he wrote with horror of the tragedy, but said, quote, a Hebrew prophet would have described Jehovah as sending an evil spirit to entice Wilkes Booth to his deed. End quote. The rumors and apprehensions at that time reaching England were that President Johnson would extend the fury he was manifesting against the supposed conspirators against Lincoln and Seward to the leaders of the Confederacy. On this, Newman said that the burning indignation in America was finite force. It was all wanted to extirpate the Southern aristocracy, and none should be wasted on Jefferson Davis or other individuals. Francis Newman never went into any so-called reform without a thorough and original investigation. I was indebted to him for the correction of several errors prevalent in America. For instance, the fiction that England had paid the West Indies slaveholders twenty millions compensation for their liberated slaves. The money was a loan some time after the emancipation, and could not have passed as payment, but its return was never demanded. Newman remembered all the circumstances in that case, and in Canning's origination of the Monroe Doctrine, and referred me to all the documents. His work in connection with the University of London had brought him into intimacy with Lord Littleton, the minister who had charge of educational affairs. He told me of a dinner given by Littleton to the professors. Some were conversing about the best plan for educating the young princes, but Littleton said, quote, 
we don't want our princes to be educated they should know european languages and general literature but not the serious things you gentlemen mean by education End quote. littleton gave him an account of his going to windsor with the duke of wellington and peel to obtain the signature of george the fourth to the catholic emancipation act the king's resolution to hold out against it was known and threatened a crisis when the three ministers laid the act before him the king was excited and cried but my oath my oath i have sworn to i pray your majesty to forgive me for interrupting you said wellington that some measure of this kind will become law in time is probable and it would be distressing to have your majesty take up an irrevocable position that might eventually prove embarrassing the king was silent and the three left when they had driven a mile away they were overtaken by a royal messenger with a request for their return the king silently signed the act of parliament as the brothers newman are associated in my mind in a quasi-phenomenal way i produce here my notes of a visit to the oratory of dr newman when he was becoming aged being on a visit in birmingham i went two miles before seven on a morning of sleet and rain to attend mass through a desire to look upon the face of father newman my wife and another lady went with me though we expected that the aged father might on such a bitter morning leave the celebration to a subordinate in the dim gothic chapel of the oratory there was but one person a young woman kneeling alone presently other women apparently four domestics entered the most eloquent learned catholic in the anglo-saxon world had for his audience that morning five believers one member of the english church and two free thinkers the altar at which he officiated was in a corner and he came slowly down a stairway behind it there was only one candle that being lit to enable him to read on the upper wall above his head was a large crucifix and beneath it on a level with his face a picture of veronica about to place the handkerchief on the face of jesus far away in his corner his silvery head bent his voice murmuring on in a monotonous feminine tone father newman seemed an almost incredible figure in enterprising and especially unitarian birmingham it was indeed a painful visit to the ladies our friend fell on her knees with her back turned to the altar saying she was unable to endure the emotion caused by the sight my wife said she felt shame that a man of intellect could go through such performances for myself i had studied the man father newman was a man of strange visage his forehead appeared very low perhaps from the way his unparted hair fell over it the top of his head seemed flattened the mouth bore an expression of pain the large chin jutted out the nose was prominent like that of wellington when the features were foreshortened in the front view and the luminous eyes bent downward or nearly closed as prayers were uttered the face resembled that of an aged woman another turn bringing a half-side face an open eye an upraised head and the effect was one that needed a raphael to portray there was at another part of the wall a picture of st francis in ecstasy just after looking at that my eyes turned to father newman whose head was haloed by the candle beyond it and he seemed to be the successor of all the saints who lived in days when saints could be real 
but it required an effort of the historical imagination to place Father Newman in his proper environment. Birmingham echoed his invocations with early steam whistles. The sounds of an awakening city stole in with the morning light. At eight o'clock the aged man gathered in his arms his paraphernalia, and with faltering tread on the stairway passed out to his mysterious labors. As we were returning from the oratory, I asked myself and the ladies with me how this could be explained. Here is the most brilliant man in the English church. All Oxford is crowding to hear him. His path is straight to the throne of Canterbury. One morning he knocks at the door of an obscure little Catholic church in Oxford, and asks admission as an humble member, alienates friends and relatives, and takes his place among the ignorant domestics and workmen. That does not appear to me wonderful, said our devout friend. One glimpse of the eternal world is enough to turn to nothingness all that this world can give. I regretted that I could find no opportunity of hearing Dr. Newman preach. Some Unitarians who went to hear him at the oratory on an Easter Sunday told me that the sermon was such as might be addressed to children. It amounted only to asking his hearers if they would not be much surprised if a person whose funeral they had attended were to meet them alive and well. After saying in various ways that they would be much surprised, he related the story of the resurrection in the language of the testament, and so ended. Cardinal Newman's name is cherished among unorthodox religionists because of his Lead Kindly Light, a favorite hymn in Unitarian churches. On January 18, 1879, Newman wrote to an inquirer that he did not remember his meaning in the closing lines, and that a writer was not bound, quote, to be ready for examination on the transient state of mind which came upon me when homesick or seasick, or in any other way sensitive or excited. End quote. But that semi-agnostic hymn of about his thirtieth year is Newman's niche in the world's imagination. Martineau lamented that his friend F. W. Newman did not appreciate the interest of his Catholic brother's career or even the picturesqueness of his personality. He ascribed it to a deficiency of imagination. My own belief is that it was not that, but precisely the same cause that prevented Martineau from seeing anything picturesque or impressive in the collaboration of his sister Harriet with Atkinson in the experiments and speculations which he, Martineau, called mesmeric atheism. In both cases the personal feeling was too painful for a right perspective. It was a page held too close to the eyes to be read. My own long intimacy with Francis Newman, and our correspondence during a generation on all social and religious issues, led me to the perception that between the brothers there was a moral resemblance so close that one might be regarded as a sort of inversion of the other. In my long experience, which has been in various countries, I have never known a man more absorbed in moral and benevolent work than Professor Newman. The self-devotion that his brother gave to a church, Francis gave to humanity. Without belief in any reward after death, he espoused the unpopular reforms of his time with an almost ascetic zeal. He never entered a theatre, abhorred wine and tobacco, had no club, played no games, avoided fashionable dinners, though his presence and manners would have made him welcome in the finest society. These apparent sacrifices, 
made not for future reward nor even to please God, were not real sacrifices at all. With a natural fondness for sport, he had so taken the suffering of the oppressed world into his heart that the so-called gaieties of life oppressed him. Like King David, who refused water from the well of Bethlehem because men had risked their lives in obtaining it, the artificial pleasures of life had appeared to him blood-stained, and his thirst for them died. He once told me of something he heard from his brother in defense of persecution. At that moment I was afraid to broach to himself two subjects of moral importance. He carried his prohibition doctrine and his opposition to the medical supervision of prostitution to the verge of intolerance. My phase of necessitarianism, to which his own theism temporarily led me, seemed to him to affect moral responsibility so grievously that he was cool to me until I got through with it. But I was then afraid to tell him that my escape was by giving up belief in a dynamic deity. I once reproached him, as our long friendship permitted, for undervaluing the flowers and the ornamental side of life. But he said, quote, I have within me such a fund of amusement that I cannot be dull on the dullest day or with the dullest surrounding. If shut up in a wretched inn or station-room on a wet summer's day, and I have but a bit of paper and pencil, I am quite happy in some mathematical problem, if nothing more important is at hand to occupy me. And these two brothers, John Henry and Francis William Newman, were the sons of an old follower of Thomas Paine. Professor Newman was deeply interested in all questions related to women, and gave me a note of introduction to a young lady of education and means endeavoring to become a physician. This was Miss Garrett, afterwards widely known as Dr. Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. Having failed in every attempt to enter any of the medical colleges or the hospitals, but finding that the law could not prevent her from entering the profession if she had attended a certain number of lectures, she was fulfilling the hard conditions. Travelling for some miles into the thickest part of the city to Locke Hospital, I found her occupying a room in the old gate, anciently the porter's lodge. Miss Garrett came to the door herself, and was apparently the only occupant of the gate. She was about twenty-one, pretty, with clear and kindly grey eyes, a person one would expect to see whirling in a dance in Belgravia. But here she was, far away, in poor and lowly Whitechapel, in her hand not a dainty fan, but a dissecting knife, and on her table, horror, a severed human arm. As she told me the story of her effort to obtain medical knowledge, she was a more poetic figure than Mariana at her moated grange. Happily the instructors in the hospital thought so too, although it was as inconsistent with professional regulations as with Miss Garrett's self-respect to instruct gratuitously, they took pains with her teaching. Sitting there alone, she listened to medical lectures and paid her fees, in fact, had established a medical college of which she was the only student. This was all done without any air of martyrdom or of pride. She entered on her medical practice in London without encountering hostility from medical men, mingled in the best society, and proved to the sceptical that a lady could be at once a successful practitioner and a happy wife and mother. Several ladies of the Garrett family contributed to the enlargement of woman's sphere in London in practical ways. 
a sister of Elizabeth Garrett became the wife of Professor Fawcett, M.P., and was an able exponent of the legal and ethical aspects of such matters. Mrs. Fawcett generally headed delegations of women to the government. A younger sister, Agnes, with her cousin Rhoda Garrett, joined together to become house decorators. They were beautiful young ladies. They told me their adventures in trying to obtain training in their art. They went to the chief firm in London, whose manager was inclined to make fun of their proposal to become apprentices. Finding them skillful as designers, he said that if they were not women, he would give them positions as subordinate directors in certain kinds of work. But, he said, young women couldn't get along with workmen. How could you swear at them, and think of nice ladies running up ladders? One of them said, as for the swearing at the workmen, they would not need that if it were ladies who made requests, and as for the ladders, bring one here and see whether we can climb it or not. The manager found some work for them, and in a year or two they opened their own establishment in Gower Street, and rose to success on the tide of enthusiasm for house decoration. In the beginning of the twentieth century, it is difficult to imagine the situation of women in 1864. At that time, two American ladies, Miss Sewall of Boston and Miss Helen Morton of Plymouth, had found admission to the Salpetriere Hospital in Paris, but Englishmen awakened slowly to the fact that their whole duty to woman was not fulfilled in having a queen. The late Lord Coleridge used to come to the gatherings of women, and I remember his demonstration of the intolerable medievalism surviving in English laws relating to women. Since then the advance in the position of woman appears to me almost the only progress made in civilization. And although during most of those years I clamored with women for their political enfranchisement, I believe that it was largely due to their helpless dependence on the absolutism of men that the outrageous laws were removed, through very shame. End of chapter 27, part 2. End of Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume 1, by Moncure D. Conway.